The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall. And I'm Mike Snoonian. And it is a new month, and with a new month, we have a new theme, and it's a topic I'm really excited to talk about, and it's another Patreon request topic. We are going to be talking about dreams. Ooh, I feel like I need to put in some like, like the heart. Wayne's World. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And our first film is one that I cannot wait to talk about, Mulholland Drive. That was a. <laughs> that was like your chainsaw noise. I know that was like a, a purring, a gentle version for the uh, drive, That's... I guess. Exactly. It was like a non-gas-powered chainsaw. So, <laughs> if a chainsaw were to drive down Mulholland Drive in David Lynch's universe. That's what it would sound that like. That seems so. as likely to happen as anything. So. Right? Yeah. Well, Naomi, and so- <laughs> check out this chainsaw. <laughs> I think it's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a recorded chainsaw. It just like it swerves, but no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> so, and you just heard another voice. We are joined by our fabulous patron, Andrew, to tell us about why he chose Mulholland Drive. So, Andrew, welcome to the pod. Welcome, Hi. welcome. Thank you. Yay! Yay. We're so happy to have you! Yay! And so excited. I didn't get to yell yay because I just burped. (laughs) Wow, we're off to the races. We are. Yeah, it's like (laughs) it's like a little sneak peek for our Patreon that we're going to record tonight when it's we're bananas. Oh boy! Yeah. Yeah. Um. So Andrew, you chose Mulholland Drive, and you chose the topic of dreams. Can you tell us a little bit about what made you want to talk about this movie? Um, all right, so I guess when just, although he's not exactly a horror director, he does make very terrifying movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been a fan of David Lynch since I was in high school. I had a, a the, this is a weird thing to describe because, well, no, I grew up in a small town, so that's probably part of it. Mm-hmm. Lumberton, Twin Peaks, that's the kind of thing that kind of clicks. Did you ever find an ear on the ground? I did not, thankfully. <laughs> um, I did, however, once have that conversation about the kid with the largest tongue ever. Like there's like a scene where you, there's a scene where like um, McLaughlin and Laura Dern are walking in the neighborhood oh, yeah. and says uh-huh. this whole weird conversation about like the, the, I knew the kid who used to live there. He had the biggest tongue I'd ever seen. And like, <laughs> I I, like I, yeah, and the, this girl I was walking with, I just I just did this scene verbatim. She had no idea what I was talking about. Totally <laughs> believed me. And then I did the little chicken walk thing, and then we just carried on like nothing happened. Oh, and now you're married. just like a David was, Lynch yeah. film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Mystery of Love played in the background. Oh. And Absolutely, were... yeah. But yeah, my assistant principal slash driver's ed teacher loaned me his bootleg copy of Eraserhead, and that kind of changed <laughs> my life. And, Hell yeah, uh, yeah. And it was like a Japanese laserdisc bootleg. Um, I only mm. know this because it randomly flashed side two in the beginning, of, like in the middle of the movie. It was, yeah. I anyway, always said, find it amazing with like when educators like give out 
horror movies because I'm someone like I bought one of our kids a subscription to Shutter for Christmas. Oh, awesome. And they're in like like they're like 12 and I'm like, eh, you'll be fine. Like the director from the uh, uh, Nick Adams from from Hellbender said like he got into horror when like his soccer coach at like age 11 took the team to see Phantasm. Wow. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, My go. teachers were not that cool. <laughs> I mean, they were nice. They just sold you drugs. They right. just like I, I did see one teacher at a Marilyn Manson concert. Ooh. It was cool. She was wearing leather pants and a tank top that revealed all her tattoos. And me and my friend were like, oh, she's so cool. Oh, that's awesome. Anyway. Yeah, some students of mine ran into me. This was years ago before I was a school counselor, but they ran into me at a zombie crawl. And I was like, as a zombie, and they didn't mm-hmm. recognize me at first. And that was very fun. <laughs> that is fun. Yeah. You can scare them. Yeah. Um, so anyway, David Lynch. Um, so I've always, uh, I've always like found the work he does very fascinating. He's definitely one of those directors that made me get into film. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember when I kind of like vaguely remember there being talk of the pilot happening. But really, I just remember the movie about to happen. And I lived in a small town, so that movie was not going to come. Um, so I had to wait until until it came to video and I ended up getting one of those screener VHSs from the video store in my neighborhood mm-hmm. at, that I wasn't supposed to get, but the first, but my friends worked there. So they loaned it to me nice. and I did, I did end up working there eventually, but anyway. And, um, and yeah, and that's uh, when I was like, this is amazing. This is mm. so not like anything else I had ever seen. And it still isn't really much else like anything I've ever seen. And like, it's, it's hard for me to think of a better movie since like the year 2000 that had like, this is like my number one in like the past 22 years. Oh, wow. And I'm not the only one on that, at least. Mm-hmm. So that's good. And yeah, it's just the kind of movie that when you first watch it, you want to figure it out. You want to know what's going on. You'll be like one of those people that goes to find the DVD insert with all the clues that actually <laughs> don't do anything. Uh-huh, and... That's just Lynch having having a laugh on us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I figured out where, where her aunt was, like, I was like, oh my God, it explains everything. It explains nothing. Yeah, yeah. And... <laughs> Just, She's just acting in like Canada, uh huh, or dead, yep. depending. Um, yes, yeah, and and I was what this, this was the this film is very important to me. That it was that movie for me for like most of high school and the beginning part of college, yeah, and or or like the latter end of high school, beginning part of college. And I would always have friends who'd watch it with me, and they'd be like, "Okay, man, explain it to me." And I would try, and they would be like, "That doesn't make any sense." And like, "I know, but just try." And uh-huh. <laughs> and so I have a lot of. I don't know. I'm sure a lot of my friends who may be listening to this are probably wondering, yeah, I remember this. And it <laughs> yeah. Can I ask a follow-up to that? Is Has your relationship with it changed now as an adult? Absolutely. Because yeah. yeah. I have a very similar trajectory, so I would love to hear your thoughts on like how you view it now versus how you viewed it when you first discovered it. Yeah, so I first went at it trying to like as this mystery to figure out. I mean, I was like 17 or at the yep. time or something. And so I wanted to figure it out. And so I spent a lot of time trying to figure it out. I watched it over and over again, trying to figure out what was going on. And now I'm more like, I don't think that's the point. Um, once you've been watching The Return, haven't you? So I mean, like, you, yeah, that's not yep. the point. And definitely you, not. <laughs> yeah. And as time goes on, you're just sort of like, oh, he just wants to get this feeling out of you. He wants you to ex- like experience what's happening. And that's that's how I'm at right now. I do subscribe to the whole the the pilot part of it is a dream, like because of that yes. one shot of a pillow just before everything starts. But um, that's that's really the only thing that I've really gone with. I know there's like four hour videos trying to explain this or something that, <laughs> mm-hmm. that oh, God, all I... amount to whatever. And yeah. yeah, yeah, I think we all kind of came to a similar 
conclusion. Yeah. In our discussion. How yeah. do you think this would have worked as a television show? So I have watched the pilot version. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it is very good, but it was not going to pan out in like 2000 ABC or whenever, mm-hmm. whoever, whatever mm-hmm. was going to go with it. And I, th- I would watch the show. There's definitely some threads that you like, what's the deal with the hitman guy? What's mm-hmm. going on with, you know, these other characters? Like there's things you want to know, of course, like, cause mm-hmm. the man behind Winky's stuff is still there and you still want to know what's going on. But at the same time, it was, it was, it would have been one season at best. Seven episodes is what I imagine. Mm-hmm. I would have loved it, but it would have been just like all those other shows from that time that mm-hmm. you no longer have. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I was watching it, I found myself, and we'll talk about this a little more in the episode, finding, like, wanting it to go somewhere. And then once it finally did, I was like, oh, oh, okay, I love this now. But I could imagine, like, I wonder how it would have been structured. Because, like, you're referring mm-hmm. to the pilot episode is where she's Betty, essentially. Yeah, the, the right. Betty Rita story. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. So I wonder, like, if it were a series, how lo- how much of the series would have been that? And when right. would the flip have been? Or would, or it would have there been have been a of, flip, yeah. Right, yeah. like mm-hmm. intercut, you know. Would it have ended with Bob Newhart waking up going, what a weird dream that was. <laughs> yeah, or, like, we're yeah. all inside a snow globe, you know? Yeah. On St. Elsewhere, I think. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sure the executives would have, I mean, he ran into those same issues in season two of Twin Peaks, and it's why he left, you know, is like, but then he came back and and gave the most bananas finale, you know, (laughs) which it's, so I can't imagine that they would have been able to see his vision for this, or how it would have taken shape. And I think that they said things like they, they even asked him to include Robert Forster because he was really big at the time. But, you know, and, and, like, so, but I love how it ends up in the movie where it's just like these cops are there and then they mm-hmm. never show up again. Mm-hmm. It's a delight. Mm-hmm. And I think both of those cops are in the return. Is that right? Yeah, they are. They definitely, okay, okay. I know Robert Forster is. And I swear, I think that there's, there's so many characters like secondary characters in there mm-hmm. that are like cops and like people that I think he might be one of the three that all look exactly the same, like the three <laughs> yes. big boys, you know? Uh, yeah. 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 It's watch the return. If you have, <laughs> it's so <Yeah>. good. <laughs> Andrew, what is it about Lynch in particular? Like if somebody were to ask like why David Lynch, like what would you tell them? I, for me, I think it's, he always finds something beautiful and something terrifying or in something banal or in something really mundane he always finds the surreal moment in the mundane that's something i've always loved about him there in the twin peaks pilot there's this scene where um where cooper is talking to a guy uh like in front of laura's dead body and like a transformer is going out or something like a light is flickering Mm -hmm. and the guy just mishears kyle talking and and it's this thing the scene that should have been just cut agent cooper says hey do you mind leaving us and the guy says oh it's jim thinking he asked what's his name and for some reason lynch leaves that in there and it's this moment that's like really actually a thing that happens in real life like it Mm. is a very hyper realistic scene that is really surreal at the same time and i just love the fact that someone else sees the world like that that there's just an odd way of seeing the there's some really odd things that happen that are extremely normal but we don't accept that Mm -hmm. and then sometimes themes are extremely terrifying but you can still find something really beautiful and poetic and all that Mm -hmm. or funny or funny yeah 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 he's hilarious like he's so funny yeah and just i could listen to him as like gordon cole all day i could listen to rothman as gordon cole (laughs) yes i love Mm -hmm. rothman's impression Uh, stephen king slash david lynch but Uh (laughs) uh-huh 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned a couple of th- or th- thinking that parts of this were terrifying, and I was wondering, what is it that you find scary about this movie or that you find unsettling? So the person behind Winkies is the best jump scare in cinema history since the cat since cat people. Like yeah. since the bus scene <laughs> yeah. cat people. And I even knew it was coming and it still scared yeah. the shit out of me. And you know it's happening. Like you're just waiting for it. It's right. you're just mm-hmm. it's, ugh, it gets you every time. I've mm-hmm. seen this movie probably twenty times and it gets me every single mm-hmm. time. So that that's one moment. And but a moment that is terrifying and beautiful is the Club Silencio scene where Rebecca Del Rio is lip syncing to the the Roy Orbison song. Mm-hmm. And it's this moment that is like, oh, this is really profound really amazing but then when she stops singing and like collapses but the song keeps going that's kind of scary and mm-hmm. it's like kind of gets you on edge mm-hmm. and like and the way the way betty and rita are responding to it with like this mixture of like crying and also like it's like fear tears but also like oh my god this is so beautiful tears mm-hmm. like that's that's something that's always really like that that's what stuck with me that's the reason why i kept watching this over and over again Mm. totally it's like not it's like a different way of being scared or unsettled you know it's like some it's like when you watch texas chainsaw massacre sometimes i feel like it's Mm -hmm. just like i don't know how to trust this movie Mm. you know i'm not exactly sure what it's gonna be um and you also mentioned that this movie and i think you said in high school this movie really meant a lot to you it was like Mm -hmm. this movie and i was wondering if you would feel comfortable telling us a little more about that like at the risk of asking too personal a question like what does this movie mean to you you know so this is one of the first movies that really i had always been into film like Mm -hmm. ever since i was like 12 years old like i've been trying to see the best picture nominees every year like, it's a thing that I tried to do. Mm-hmm. And this was one of those movies that really bridged that, like, art house and mainstream thing for me. Mm-hmm. And I had already kind of gotten into into David Lynch at that point, but I hadn't really gotten full throttle until I really saw this. And that's, like, the reason why it became such an important thing was it's this movie that I kept looking at and looking at and studying it and kind of getting a lot of film analysis out of it. Mm-hmm. I would, you know, I was trying to figure out the mystery, but when figuring out the mystery, I was actually noticing these other things. Like I was seeing, oh, this is like an interesting way to A, salvage a project that you didn't get to finish, but B, like find a way to make a story work in a way that's not expected Mm -hmm. to subvert. the. It's probably how I first really understood how to subvert things in Mm -hmm. a film Mm -hmm. is from him. And and that's just kind of like what I've been into. Mm -hmm. Love it. Yeah, Yeah, I very much relate to that. So that's great. Where would you, if you were someone, if someone watched this and then said, like, dug it, where else would you steer them towards when it comes to, like, Lynch movies or, you know, movies of this ilk? So, like, I, like the next steps, I would always say, is, like, uh, I did this thing once where I was trying to figure out a exercise of, it's a podcast of mine you can listen to, using Twin Peaks as, like, a compass to get around his filmography mm-hmm. and i always actually say blue velvet is a, a great way well the twin peaks pilots is a great place to start but then to watch blue velvet before you watch the rest of the series because it's really easy to pretend that kyle mclaughlin grows up to become agent cooper like, <laughs> yeah. it's really easy to pretend that um and then like as you go along like like i, I made like this thing where you're like at episode eight of the return you need to stop <laughs> and give you some time because a lot of weird things happen in that episode that, that episode and, is insane oh my god yeah but uh, when it comes to like, if you're really into Mulholland Drive, I would like Blue Velvet is always the uh, is a great thing to start because that one is still kind of like a mainstream crime movie, but it's still really weird. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't want to get into Twin Peaks because it is a TV show, um, the next thing after that I would say would be Lost Highway, which is a little bit more of a horror film. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I would call Inland Empire advanced Lynch studies. <laughs> yeah, exactly, uh, exactly. As, as it is a three-hour, it's a three-hour horror film. Oh wow! <laughs> straight up of Laura Dern being a really great actress. Let's okay. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. Um, Rothman yeah. has recommended that to me several times, saying it's one of the scariest movies he's ever seen. And I just it is really yeah. It and I saw that in the theater. Like I saw it when it was like new and everything, and they had the David Lynch coffee at the time. Mm-hmm. So I was really upset that I had to get up to pee at one point. <laughs> but wait, uh, David Lynch coffee? Can you yeah, explain this? <laughs> yeah, he apparently has like uh, you could have got it off his website. He may, it may still exist. I don't really know. But for a time, he was selling coffee because uh, why not? It's very on brand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the and the cinema I was seeing it at had it. They're like, yeah, and we got some Lynch coffee if you want to try too. So. During yeah. this three-hour film, yeah, and yeah, that's yes. just asking for trouble. <laughs> it, did, yeah. it was a good time. Yeah. yeah, and is there any? Are there any other filmmakers kind of akin to Lynch? I mean, I would even have a hard time answering this question. There's the obvious like Cronenberg type thing, but yeah. I, I think that there's no one quite with the flavor of Lynch. I, yeah, they may get the. I would be hard. They may get the terror. They may get the mundane, but they won't necessarily get the poetry, or they'll get the poetry, but they may not get the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like Stanley Kubrick gets kind of lumped into him, but I don't really think that's a no. really fair comparison. Not I think at it's just all. like a, Yeah, it's. I don't know. There's a lot of like he gets kind of lumped in with the film bro folk and mm. that's not really a like I would not like you know like Tarantino Tartofsky like I wouldn't really put them all together he's kind of his yeah, own maybe thing. Tarkovsky I could see a little yeah. bit but th- none of the others to me that misses the point I think it's easy to do very skim surface reads of his films mm-hmm. and not really sink into what they're what his intention and that I think is is to let you experience emotions in a way that is very organic um so i I just get pissed i get pissed off (laughs) now that you said that i just i guess fellini would work um sure sure Mm -hmm. i'm certain ones but yeah i guess that italian i want you to feel it kind of thing (laughs) yes yes yes. (laughs) so film bro folks of zack snyder (laughs) all right yeah zack snyder yep let's go straight to the (laughs) snyder cut oh yeah release it sorry (laughs) well is there anything i guess is there anything we haven't talked about with the movie that you would like to talk about? Even if it's on the theme of dreams mm-hmm. or like, what oh, yeah, made dreams. You, we I haven't mean, talked about dreams at all. We haven't yeah. talked about dreams. That's right. Yeah. Um, Only well, in dreams. For one, for one thing, I thought it was a good topic to let you guys have a free for all. Yeah. Um, because, yeah. Um, and, and really, I just wanted to hear Lara talk about lunch because I <laughs> can hear you itching about it. So yes. Much. Yes. I was very itchy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but dreams are, it's one of those things that should be in, I really hate that it's like a cliche looked down upon thing in movies because it's it allows you to do whatever you want. Yeah, you that's true. Something, and I mean, the Elm Street series is all about that. Like that's the neat stuff you can do with a dream sequence. Mm-hmm. And I know that dreams are very important to Lynch because like all of his movies are have that kind of dreamlike um, feeling. Oh, uh, I, I just thought of a movie. Um, so this... Uh, so a, a movie that's kind of got that sort of dreamlike thing is uh, Last Year, Marie and Bod. It's like a French movie. Um, mm. I've never a, seen it, but I'm familiar with it. Yeah, the movie Spencer with um, Kristen Stewart also oh, kind of reminds uh-huh. me of it. But I think I that may just that. be because it's big spooky manner with a lot of songs. Mm-hmm. Oh, that movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I yeah. did see that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, it actually but, made me think of The Science of Sleep just now, like Michelle that, Gondry, yeah. that kind of... I mean, he's much um, gentler, I guess, but mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so like... And I think dreams are just—they're not really looked at that much. I mean, we have our—we have our handful of horror films about dreams, mm-hmm. but we don't have a lot of just other movies about dreams. And that's—I don't know why. Like, it should be its own like subgenre of mm-hmm. just movies about dreams. 
And I think it's because it feels like a like a writing no no. Like and it was all a dream. And like yeah, so like what? a Deus so Machina thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and I get that. I mean, I understand where they're coming from, but I still think that you can just literally look at the idea of dreams and find something really fascinating in that. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it could be a child molester, you know, is killing teenagers later, or 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 it could be that like someone is just working through some kind of grief and have these weird grief dreams. Yeah. Um, okay, I will tell you a weird grief dream. All right, just real quick. Um, sometime after my mother died, I had this dream where I was waking up. And I picked up my phone and phone said mom. And it was a dream, so I just thought it was normal. I pick up the phone and <laughs> my, my mom says, when are you going to get your life right? And then I said, like, we're like, <laughs> yeah, like literally that line. Oh. Yeah. yeah. When are you going to get your life right? And I say, and, and I say the next line of the song in the dream. I was like, we're not the fortunate ones, mom. And then I hung up the phone and then re- later I was like, I just dreamed a Cindy Lauper grief dream. Oh, that's and, wild. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And it, and it was one of those dreams that's like so mundane that you don't really uh-huh. think about it until like, I didn't think about it until like after lunch. I was like, <laughs> mm-hmm. and like, that could be like the kind of thing that like you could have, like, why aren't there movies like that? Like experiencing right. other things about like, and I think David Lynch does that a lot. Like I think um, Fire Walk With Me is looking at uh, parental abuse in kind of a dreamlike quality. And I think that that's, it's a totally legitimate way to look at terrible things in a manner that is both deep and artistic. So mm-hmm. and I don't know why it's not done so much. I completely I, agree. I completely I agree too. I mean, how many times have we talked about some psychology topic, whether it's like PTSD or something where dreams are part of it, like affecting mm-hmm. your dreams, affecting your quality of sleep. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. Well, and dreams and sleeping are something that everybody does. I mean, yeah. I'm sure that there are some people on earth that don't dream or don't remember their dreams, but I mean, it's so relatable, you know, and everybody has this dream that's scared them or that has touched some other part of their life. So, yeah. It kind of all turns us to children again. It's where we're mm-hmm. not in control. Where it's part. I, I do think there's some collective unconscious sort of themes that will happen, you know? Yeah. It's, it's kind of what ties us together in a really pure way. It is, mm-hmm. yeah. Aww. It's like oh. one third of your life, right? Sleep, right? Or, yeah. Or well, it used to be one third of your life. Now we're lucky if it's like mm. an eighth. a quarter. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I just talked about sleep and therapy the other day too. So this is oh. that's what I've been telling my spring break is coming up. So the thing I've been oh. asking, what are you gonna do for spring break? And they're like, oh, I don't know, sleep. sleep. That's sleep. what you're gonna do. <laughs> that's what we've we've all said. I was having this conversation with another counselor in our building today. We both said we just want to sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. It's like the the most desirable thing at this juncture in my life. When I realized that recently, I was like, oh, no, that's bad. (laughs) See, but and I I feel that way, too. But like what I was talking about in therapy the other day was that like that's when you lose control and like I Mm -hmm. can't make myself wake up at a certain time and so I wake up and I've missed whatever I my brain tells me I should have been awake for so it's it's so weird this relationship we have with just being unconscious and letting our body just do what it needs to do you know I have a thing now where I just I can't if I go to bed early to get a good night's sleep I wake up at three in the morning same same and I'm not awake enough where I'm like I'll get up and go to the 24-hour gym or I'll get up and watch a movie or I'll get up and you know, clean the kitchen quietly and get a couple of things done. It's, I will stay awake and my dog will try to push me out of bed and I will <laughs> ponder every life choice I've made that yes. has gotten me here. It's the witching hour. It's the no. the time yeah. of dark darkness. Uh, have you ever had hypnagogic jerks, which is also my favorite name for a band? Hypnagogic jerks? That is That's such what a happens fun when word. you're, I know, I love saying it. 
and I never get a chance to say it, so I just said it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's when you're falling asleep, and it feels like yes. you're falling, and then uh-huh. you go, Ugh! and then you wake, your body wakes. Sometimes time. I get yeah. into really bad like cycles with that sometimes, and it yeah. just, oh, it drives me crazy, like that. Ugh, mm-hmm. you're, Ugh. Yeah, it's like a. It's like, I've often had the thing where I, I'll have one of those when I'm like just turning on my side. So instead of just turning on my side, I feel like I fell seven feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. It freaks me out. So Andrew, you have a podcast of your own. Yeah. Yes. yes. Can you uh, yes. care to let our listeners know where they can find you? Yes, please listen to us. Um, <laughs> we are. Uh, it's the. It's me and my co-host Tim. We are something. We don't like. It's called the. Uh, uh, is the Dead Letter Movie Podcast. We, although I realize it sounds like it's a zombie-themed podcast, it is not. It's just movies. Um, we're somewhere between the, like, a Siskel Neighbor review and the Pure Cinema Podcast, which I did not know existed until last <laughs> year or so. I, yeah, but it's something in between that. And we we cover anything. We'll, we, since the pandemic, we haven't been able to get in the theater as much to review mm-hmm. things. But when festivals were digital, we were able to do a couple of fun things there. And we... We just finished um, the Oscar coverage, so we just did the 10 nominees there. And we were going to do a commentary for the best winner, for the, the best picture winner. But then with Coda won, we were like, oh, maybe that's not, that might be a little gauche. So we're <laughs> yeah. figuring out the next thing we're going to do. But uh, And I'm trying to write more on it. So mm-hmm. okay. actually, as soon as I'm done with this, I'm going to try to write up a thing. So. Oh, that's which, nice. Which yeah. episodes would you steer listen, new listeners to? So I last year we did a series on movies for bands. So we called it Bands on the Real, and that was we watched uh, the we watched um, a Hard Day's Night and the Monkeys movie Head, as well as Purple Rain and UHF. Yeah, and we also did a we did a <laughs> double. For. We ended the series with uh, Pure Country, which is not a good movie, um, <laughs> but but I want it to be remade with uh, Orville Peck. Um, he's like this masked kind of gay country singer now. Mm-hmm. And, oh, uh, yeah, I'm intrigued. A, yeah, it was like a two-for episode with Pure Country and Spice World, and we actually both really enjoyed Spice World. So. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. That sounds Excellent. awesome. That sounds Freak. fun. Yeah, yeah, we'll make sure to link that also. Yeah, I'll yeah. say, where could everyone find you guys? Mm-hmm. It's just deadlettermovies.com. Sorry. All right. And wherever you find your podcast. Yes. yes. Well, yes. Whatever trash can or <laughs> stinky grease pit. <laughs> mysterious locked box right have in your purse yeah Mm -hmm. yeah bag full of old people (laughs) miniature old people i guess miniature old people yeah Yeah. you never know (laughs) oh andrew thank you so much for joining us thank you for picking this movie yes i said my first lynch and i'm excited to dive into some more so (laughs) me too yeah this was so much fun smelling you coming back on for a comfort horror episode where we discuss another Lynch movie. Ooh, I would love to do Blue future. Velvet. I would love yeah. to talk about Blue Velvet. Yeah. That'd be Lock awesome. Lock it up. Lock yeah. it up. Yeah. That would be a comfort pick for me, even though it's a little, it's got some issues for reasons. Yeah. That... No, it was, it was my stay at home sick movie when I was in mm-hmm. high school. Aww. So, and, and I think part of that was like, well, at least I'm not having to deal with this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, it does it. definitely, it is not a nice movie. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, I want to watch it. I, I haven't I... seen it. Bought it on DVD for my wife. So I think, like when we were dating, I thought she told me it was one of her favorite movies. <laughs> but um, then it wasn't. <laughs> she's like, "Why did you get me this?" It's like, and "What I'm are like, you trying to tell me?" <laughs> so I was wrong. It was "Blue Suede Shoes," the song yes. by Elvis. <laughs> it was actually the Smurfs. Ah, of course, uh, of course, yeah. yes. I, yeah, now I have like. All the terrible scenes of Dustin of of, of Dennis Hopper with a Smurf oh. in my head now. 
He's like huffing a Smurf instead yes. of a gas oh, mask. Yes. Yeah. It's, Speaking it's of, of Dennis Hopper, I am not, uh, I am not convinced that he didn't just wander on the set of Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two. Like fucking mm-hmm. not hired for the movie, just high as balls. Mm-hmm. And and Toby Hooper is like, fuck it, let's just run with it. There you go. Let's Here's just. What is he doing? It works. We'll make it work. There's another one. Absolutely. I just I, walked right into that. You one. really did. I know. Right that chainsaw. <laughs> like yeah. Leatherface. That's right. <clears throat> well, thank you so Anywho. much for joining us. This was a lot yes. of fun. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. You guys are my favorite podcast. And I'm a school counselor as well. So when I heard that there was going to, because like Laura and, and, and Jen, I knew you from the Losers Club. And when you had your little thing and Mike came on, I was like, I was like, oh, this is like, yes. this, this is, uh, this smashes all my answer <laughs> oh, buttons. It's like awesome. the fellowship, yeah. the fellowship of the miserable. It's great. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, you have my tears and oh. my prescription drugs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I need, and then just a llama walks through the recording. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. And we are excited to talk about this movie. So before we dive into dreams, we are going to give a brief synopsis in case you haven't seen Mulholland Drive or it's been a while or like me, you saw it and are not totally sure what happens. So <laughs> so here is your spoiler warning. Spoiler and seal. <laughs> <laughs> drop in a, a plaint of trombone. Yes, yes. It's like... <laughs> Right, right. And I mean, you'll never know because this is an audio meme, but I didn't move my lips when I said that. Yeah, this is all a recording. Sound just appeared. Oh, you know what? Yeah. This is all a recording. (laughs) They know it Naposa Instruments, a podcast. No, I love Yeah, whatever the fuck you say. (laughs) We see a POV shot of someone collapsing into a bed with rumpled red sheets. A dark-haired woman rides in the back of a limo that winds its way down a darkened stretch of Mulholland Drive in Los Angeles. Her driver pulls over and threatens her with a gun, only for a car of joyriding youths to crash into the limo. The dark-haired woman is the sole survivor of the wreck. Dazed and bleeding from a head wound, she gets up and walks away, passing out in some bushes near a ritzy apartment complex. The next morning, she sneaks into an apartment that she spots being vacated by a resident with lots of luggage. Next, we meet Betty, an aspiring young actress who is as blonde, wide-eyed, and girl-next-door-zy as they come. She arrives in the airport on the arm of an old lady she befriended on the plane. She heads to the same apartment complex to ostensibly house-sit for her Aunt Ruth while she pursues her Hollywood dreams. There she discovers the dark-haired woman, who has complete amnesia from her head injury, but tells Betty her name is Rita after seeing a poster for Gilda, starring Rita Hayworth. After some fairly weak subterfuge, Rita admits to Betty she can't remember jack shit. They find a bunch of money and a mysterious blue key in her purse, and the two gals realize they have a mystery on their hands. At Winky's Diner, an anxious man, played by Patrick Fischler, tells another random dude that he's been seeing him here at Winky's in his dreams. But there's something else. There's a horrible presence behind the diner. It seems predestined that he's going to go look and find out what's really there. The two men head out back and approach a dumpster, where a dirt-covered figure with a horrible face appears, causing Patrick Fischler and anyone who is seeing this movie for the first time to collapse in fright. 
Next up in the parade of seemingly unconnected characters is director Adam Kesher, a spiky-haired, thick-framed glasses-wearing, mandarin-collar-having, early 2000s auteur type. He's having a big, important Hollywood meeting about his latest film when two comically obvious mobster types show up. A wordless shift in power involving a cup of coffee occurs, and they demand Adam cast an unknown actress named Camilla Rhodes as his lead. He refuses, and the one not played by composer Angelo Badalamenti tells him it's no longer his movie. Adam returns home to find his wife cheating on him with the pool guy, played by Billy Ray Cyrus in his bronzed and then mulleted prime. Adam reacts poorly, and somehow ends up being the one kicked to the curb. He also finds that he suddenly has no money in the bank and the entire film production is being shut down. He gets a call encouraging him to meet a man known only as the Cowboy at a weird ranch out in the middle of nowhere. Adam is befuddled as anyone as to what the hell is going on, but grudgingly meets up with the Cowboy. As advertised, he sure is a cowboy, ten-gallon hat and all. He's also ominous as fuck, despite being extremely funny. He tells Adam to head back into the studio the next day and cast Camilla Rhodes as the lead, or else. We also get an extended sequence in a dumpy office building with a hitman in a leather jacket who shoots a guy and steals his book full of phone numbers. But in the process, he shoots through the wall and hits a woman right in the ass in the next office over. Oops. The situation keeps escalating as a custodian sees the hitman struggling with the woman. Somehow a fire breaks out, the three people end up dead, and the hitman has a really bad day at work. Meanwhile, Betty and Rita are on the case. They go to Winkies and are served by a waitress who looks a lot like Betty. Her name tag says Diane, which triggers a memory for Rita, someone named Diane Selwyn. Now Betty has to go for an audition that she has somehow lined up already. I'm not going to even try and do this scene justice. Suffice to say, it turns out Betty can act. She can act the fucking shit out of a scene, to the point of making out with a creepy old actor and absolutely destroying his soul. Hell yeah, Betty. The casting agent is so impressed that she takes Betty to another soundstage, where they're holding auditions for a movie. It turns out it's Adam's production. Camilla Rhodes, a blonde actress who also looks a bit like Betty, appears for her casting call. Adam knows what he has to do, telling his team, this is the girl. He locks eyes with Betty and something seems to pass between them. But Betty realizes she's late to meet back up with Rita and heads out. Rita and Betty track down Diane Selwyn to a less ritzy apartment complex and break into her apartment through a window when no one answers. In the bedroom, they find the decaying corpse of a woman, probably Diane. They freak and GTFO. Back at Betty's apartment, Rita is very afraid. Betty puts her in a short blonde wig that looks a lot like her own hair. That night, they merge even further as passion overtakes them, and they make the sexy sex. It's very emotional and dreamlike. At 2 a.m., Rita wakes up murmuring, Silencio, which is also what I do when I wake up at 2 a.m. and can't sleep. Betty and Rita get dressed and go to a mysterious place called Club Silencio, a sparsely attended theater where an avant-garde performance is going down. Through various acts, the MC tells the audience that nothing is real and everything is a recording. A singer, Rebecca Del Rio, takes the stage and sings a heart-rending, Spanish-language rendition of Roy Orbison's crying. Betty and Rita hold each other and cry, overtaken seemingly by fear and sadness and tenderness all at once. Mid-song, Rebecca faints, but the song continues. It's all a recording. Betty opens her purse and finds a box that matches Rita's mysterious blue key. They go back to the apartment, where Betty suddenly disappears. Rita unlocks the box, which is empty, like a void, and it seems to suck her in. 
The box falls to the floor. Rita is gone, too. We see the cowboy in Diane Selwyn's apartment. He stands in the bedroom door and tells the corpse, it's time to wake up. Diane wakes up in a bed with red sheets in the same apartment Rita and Betty investigated. She appears to be Betty. They are identical, but not. Diane is fragile and sad and is clearly not Betty, despite her appearance. A blue key rests on her coffee table. We learn that she's a struggling actress named Diane Selwyn, who is in love with another actress named Camilla Rhodes. But it's not the blonde we briefly glimpsed earlier. Camilla is Rita. They've been having a fling that clearly meant everything to Diane and nothing to Camilla. Camilla invites Diane to a party in a mansion just off of Mulholland Drive. There we learn that Camilla and director Adam are probably engaged or at least very romantically involved. Camilla flaunts this in Diane's face and kisses a blonde woman, the same actress we thought was Camilla Rhodes earlier. The heartbroken Diane meets the hitman, also from earlier, at Winkie's and hires him to kill Camilla. He tells her she'll find a blue key when the job is done. Flash forward. Back in her apartment, Diane looks at the blue key, clearly broken by what she's done. Her purse falls over, and the little old woman from the beginning of the film, along with her little old husband, tumble out. The miniature old couple run after Diane, then become life-sized, screaming in her face. Completely freaking the fuck out, Diane runs to her bed, finds a handgun, and shoots herself in the head. Diane lies dead in bed, and we cut to black as we hear a voice whisper, Silencio! 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 I mean, again, of all the episodes to be just extremely bizarre, it's... Mulholland Drive, you know. Yeah, I can just say random shit. It's right. Great. Yeah. And it all I'm, fits in. It all somehow drop in like sentences from other episodes. Whatever you, you know? want it to mean. <laughs> right. Is it real? Is it a dream? Is it a podcast? Right. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I'm oh, no. oh shit, it's a podcast. We fucked up. <laughs> we chose the wrong one. Okay, let's let's carry on. <laughs> All right, so now let's do a feelings check. And this is when we share our first time watching um, Mulholland Drive and how we feel when we watch it. And Mike, would you kick us off, please? Sure. So I think I've said this before we recorded uh, on other episodes that like this is Baby's First Lynch. David Lynch is like, uh, I've watched like the first season and half a season two at Twin Peaks, um, but I've never watched any of his actual filmography. And it's someone that I've always like, I don't know if I could get it. Like I, I am at an age now where I'm like, I don't always want to do a lot of heavy lifting sometimes when I pop in a movie. And I was always under the idea that I love the fact that David Lynch exists. It's just like John Waters, another one I've only seen a couple movies. Like the world is a much better place with them in it but they might not necessarily be for me. Mm. And I was surprised. I remember when I told my wife, like, all right, I got to go watch this movie for the show. She was like, oh, sorry. And uh, I went downstairs and like loved it. Like, you know, I immediately like it was my jam. Mm. Mm -hmm. Went ahead and ordered like the criterion about midway through the movie. I'm like, all right, this is something I'm going to return to a bunch. I kept waiting for it to get super weird and inaccessible and i felt mm. like it never made that turn you know there's a lot of ways you can interpret it but it's pretty easy to follow uh mm. and i never felt lost like there were maybe a few moments in the third act but like once you kind of wrap your head around like what's going on and come up with an idea of why it's going on you're like you can follow the rest of it 
pretty mm. easily. I'm someone that really loves the work of early James Elroy, like when he was writing about like 1950s and 1960s Los Angeles uh, and how that city developed in the influence of like the Hollywood system, but in particular, like organized crime in mm. Los Angeles and police corruption. And this movie felt a lot like a surreal James Elroy novel brought to life. Like think of like LA confidential, but if it mm. had like a much more nightmarish twist to it. So I was really enjoying the vibe that it was going for. And, you know, it doesn't hurt that like Naomi Watts and Laura Haring are, incredibly easy to look at and i don't just mean from like they're obviously two gorgeous women uh and naomi watts like i've loved her since seeing her in the ring Mm -hmm. she's great she's so fucking good in this movie i could scream yeah Mm -hmm. but the the performances are completely enveloping in this in this movie like Mm -hmm. you just get lost in their story and what they're doing and just like watching naomi watts perform um, mm-hmm. And this, like some of the things she does in particular with Betty uh, are just really wonderful. And it just made it very easy to kind of appreciate this movie. So I'm mm-hmm. really excited, not so much to talk about this movie, but to really kind of listen to like Lara talk about it. But someone who's like much more versed in Lynch, like it's going to be one mm-hmm. of those fun episodes or, you know, I get to like interject here or there but really get like an education. So no pressure, Laura. Oh, so why don't we... <laughs> we need, we should have gotten Rothman on this episode. Cause he's the true Lynch expert. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I love David Lynch, but I don't, I, you know, I can't compete with some of these Lynch fans, but yeah. Also, this was Naomi Watts's like first big mm-hmm. break. You'll really enjoy oh, yeah. the criterion features when you get the DVD. I oh. have the criterion channel login, you know, so I was watching the criterion features for this and there's a lot of really great stuff in there and just learning about, their relationship like lynch and naomi watts and just like this obvious like love that they have for each other and like Mm -hmm. i just love hearing actors talk when they so clearly love working with a director Mm -hmm. and you know he really puts people through their paces but in a way that's very like protective of them and their emotional health like on set Mm -hmm. you know and he you know it's just i it just makes me so happy (laughs) like everything about it and it's you know obviously I could, I could, I might have to stop myself from going on a ton of tangents in this episode, but <laughs> yeah, obviously I adore this movie. It may be, it's like, it's up there. It's probably my favorite. It's in my top five favorite movies. It's always hard to be like, what's your favorite David Lynch movie or with mm-hmm. any director's output. But this one is, is pretty up there for me along with maybe blue velvet and obviously the twin peaks um, just in general, just all of twin peaks. But mm-hmm. I saw it whenever it first hit DVD um, probably in 2002, because I, I know it was a, it came out in 2001, so it was somewhere in that vicinity of time. I just know me and my friend used to rent it over and over from Blockbuster and watch it, and we literally like took notes because <laughs> mm-hmm. we were like two little teenage dweebs that were like, "This is so cryptic and weird. We gotta f- crack this nut." Um, this was also like encouraged by there's somewhere I think it's in the DVD like notes, but I can't remember when it appeared, but it was definitely one of those things you could find on like message boards in the early Internet with like 10 clues to solve this thriller. And he's like, take note of the red lampshade and like this kind of thing. But I think it's the wrong way to watch a Lynch film. And I think he was having a little bit of cheeky fun with with those clues, as he often mm-hmm. does with his audience. Um 
you know, so I haven't seen it in over a decade. So it was a real treat to watch it again as an adult who is dead inside from <laughs> repeated trauma and heartbreak and given up mm. on all her dreams. So I really related to it extra hard now and was able to appreciate it on a more visceral level. In my opinion, it's Lynch coalescing around a lot of the themes and ideas from his other films, plus a real like bitter catharsis from working in the Hollywood system. Mm-hmm. Plus a wonderful meditation on love and heartbreak and the disorienting nature of dreams and how we process all these things. Like, um, but on top of that, it's so absorptive, like Mike was saying, it's so watchable. It's so funny. I don't think people give Lynch enough credit for how fucking hilarious he is. Like I laugh more during this and watching Twin Peaks than during like any comedy that I would put on. But it's mm-hmm. also like really existentially upsetting. The score of Badalamente, who also appears in the film, is one of the two gangsters. Um, The one who spits out the coffee is is Badalamente, the composer. Those shots of, like, driving, like, the dark road lit by headlights, the day Mm -hmm. shots looking up at the palm trees. It's, like, everything is this little gesture about the, like, as above, so below nature of Hollywood and Los Angeles. But it's also just so, like, aesthetically, like, hypnotic. I love that we get things like that bumbling hitman sequence or the two cops that we never really return to and all these side characters like the cowboy and Cookie and Coco. Oh, three C's and the film gangsters like they really make this nightmare mashup of old Hollywood plus early 2000s Hollywood kind of come to life. And that's Mm -hmm. always like Lynch. His stuff seems to exist in a world outside of time. But there's always these kind of like mid-century elements in there that are like they don't feel like realistic, but they feel right, you know? Mm hmm. And this, another little bit of trivia that I'm sorry, I have to say, this was originally supposed to be a pilot for a show that was kind of like a follow-up to Twin Peaks, but he, so some of those elements, like the two cops showing up, like they, I think they were supposed to be woven into the show, but he chose like very intentionally to like leave them in there as unfinished thoughts, which really does feel like a dream or like having something of yours taken away from you. And mm-hmm. like, I, you know, so I feel like it's a really good conceptual gesture. I can't even imagine what this would look like as an ongoing network television show at 22 episode hour-long episodes yeah (laughs) i mean i could have seen like they could have done like a whole neo i feel like it would have just been like the betty show like the Mm neo-noir thing like it would have a bunch of misadventures you know but i don't know i mean who knows like twin peaks seems so simple on its surface premise and then it's like actually it's about like the nature of evil intersecting in our universe through the atomic bomb like it's all this Mm -hmm. like fucking crazy shit this watch also just, uh, I'll be done soon, I promise. It okay. also made something click for me wh- like regarding why I enjoy Lynch so much, which is, and th- this might be like an obvious observation, but it just never formed in my head before. But it's just, it's not just weird shit happens. Like people think that about Lynch. It's like the, the takeaway a lot of people have is like, oh, his movies are real fucking weird. Nothing makes sense. But it's weird shit happens to characters who are just as in the dark as the audience. Mm. To me, it's the difference between like a surreal, zany, random world and a world that has suddenly become surreal for a character. Mm -hmm. And we're going along with them on that journey. The directors, the stuff that happens to Adam, the director, is a good example of like, he's going like, what the fuck is happening the whole time? And he's just Uh like, why is this cowboy here? Why is he talking to me? And his sort of deadpan reactions are so funny, but it, it just like works you know it makes it work mm-hmm. if he wasn't as befuddled as us those scenes would be like it would be like intolerable to watch this it would just be like what is happening this is all so random you know but i think that's a theme that goes through all his films too sometimes i think all his films take place in the same universe you know mm-hmm. like especially this and like twin peaks um but i love this movie i'll stop talking now <laughs> well i this was also my first watch i think i had seen part of this when it came out and um, but I'd had very little memory of it. And I think 
I just can't imagine what I would have thought about it coming out of my little sheltered Southern um, Christian college environment, watching <laughs> yeah. this movie and being like, oh, <laughs> there's a so lot here. <laughs> there there really is. So it's possible that I did see this and just did not was not able to engage with it enough to really have a, a memory of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I was watching this, I kind of had this this arc of watching it. And like when we watch movies, like it reminded me of Carnival of Souls in a lot of ways, like the first part, because it, there's like this old Hollywood feel to it. There's very this very deliberate like this is feels very glamorous and very fancy and like noirish, you know, which I was really enjoying. I love Justin Theroux and I love Naomi Watts. And I had never seen um, Rita in anything before but I loved her like she just has this such gorgeous iconic look that I was really into like the styling and the the imagery is just really really soothing but I also found myself being like okay what is the point what is happening what is going on here you know and so around the hour 15 mark I was like I'm gonna need something to happen in this movie and then it kind of takes that turn where she wakes up in that position Mm -hmm. and that's and now that I have seen the whole thing it's like oh there's a reason that is so meandering in the front like I think this really exists as kind of this exploration which is and I'm not really familiar with David Lynch and the reason that I had not really ever dived into his work is because it always struck me as weird for the sake of weird and now that I have seen this entire movie I'm like no it's it's he's exploring things exactly sometimes you just don't get to the end of that thread you know and so like which I think is perfect for a movie where most of it I think is supposed to be a dream that's kind of how I take it and I'm like well yeah like random people show up like Billy Ray Cyrus is in a dream because I happen to have seen him in something else you know so like it it just fits together as this perfect kind of unfinished kind of puzzle but that's what a dream is in a lot of ways so I'm really excited to talk about it because the way that it ended I was like oh shit okay I see what you're doing I see what you're going for now and now I'm like excited to kind of dive into a lot of his other work Mm -hmm. and I am always willing to let go like suspension of disbelief I have a really easy time with it It, I don't need everything to wrap up in a bow and it doesn't pull me out of a movie if something doesn't line up so I was like that's not what was bothering me I was just I couldn't figure out what the point was and now that I know what the point is I was like this is incredible I love it I want to I want to talk about it. I'm really excited to talk about it because I feel like it takes a lot of guts to make the first two thirds of your movie really (laughs) meandering, you know? And I wonder if it was just that like I turned it off when I wasn't ready to really engage with that earlier in my life. And now that I am like, holy shit, I think it's this really interesting exploration of, like you said, love and like grief and guilt, you know, and like the, the blue key thing I thought was really interesting, Um, And just so much that I think is left unsaid and unfinished, I think, allows me to kind of take what I want from it, you know. And also, this is a really maybe strange connection, but the old people that she gets on the plane with that like kind of walk out of the back. Like I'm also I just reread Dolores Claiborne. 
And she has this, like, the Vera is just terrified of these dust bunnies, you yes, know, that, yes. like, in so, some way represent grief. And I was like, that's like the old you people. Know, yeah, because actually that's one of the scariest things about that book that I totally forgotten about where she's seeing something that other people can't see and they're, like, mm-hmm. coming from under her bed and it's those dust bunnies. Like, there's something about that that always really upset me. And that is totally, like, similar, like, just like this inexplicable thing. It's, like, so weird. But I think that really gets at that feeling of, just complete terror and helplessness that can come with a lot of emotional disturbance in life, you know? Right. Yeah. And like, I feel like when, um, I, I started thinking about this when I heard faculty of horrors episode on hang picnic at hanging rock. And they're like, in order to make this horror, you really have to add, engage with it. You have to kind of add rigor as I think what they said. And because for part of the movie, I was like, okay, is this a horror movie? And then right. I think the scene with the old people when they're like, chasing her down that's terrifying but it's because it comes out of the blue and there's so little information about it and I think that it you need to have a bunch of non-horror to make that effective you know like if this was just a jump scare movie it wouldn't be no because it comes out of the blue you know so anyways Uh, out of the blue box found it more horror adjacent than a straightforward horror movie yeah because even the he's not necessarily borrowing many tropes from horror movies. Like you see that a lot with like certain thrillers or certain movies like shutter Island. is a good example where shutter mm-hmm. Island is not necessarily a straightforward horror movie, but he, but Scorsese says he borrows from a lot of certain horror movie tropes mm-hmm. uh, to make it more horrific where this, you know, uses a lot of like dream logic and nightmare logic in order to make it happen. But mm-hmm. it does have like, to like Laura said, like more of an old Hollywood feel to it. It mm. feels more like a crime caper it, that just the crime caper never necessarily unfolds. Mm-hmm. Like it's one yeah, aspect. It takes of a it. it takes a hard left turn. You're like, oh, I'm going down crime caper street, and then it's like, no, you're right. not, bitch. Like that's David Lynch. Mm-hmm. Like he just is like, I'm gonna create, I'm gonna set up some world, and then I'm gonna take a lot of sharp and upsetting turns. And it, I'm just. I, I think that's like because he is always doing his own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he he's sort of like a subgenre unto himself, you right. Know? right? Yeah. And I yeah. just think that in a lot of ways that ma- mirrors what all of us go through in life. I mean, exactly. our lives are never really one genre. Like even when you're, if you're experiencing a, a great amount amount of tumult in your life at a certain moment, you still have a lot of like mundane things that happen. You still have moments where you can possibly experience joy or you just have like shit to do like Mm -hmm. your life is never any one thing at any given moment exactly Mm -hmm. exactly yeah I think the moment that I really bought into this film was when um they go back and they get the hat box out again and they're gonna try this key and then Naomi Watts just disappears Mm -hmm. yeah I was like and I can't even remember if it's Naomi Watts or Rita that disappears. No, it's Naomi it's- Watts because she goes yeah. Betty and then she goes, you know, into the, the she finds the, the box. But yeah, there's so many ways to read that moment. Um, mm-hmm. And there's so, yeah, and even with like how they both disappear and then Aunt Ruth is like walking from room to room. Like mm-hmm. there, there's so many ways to read that. And like who's, it's almost like to me, there's these layers like and we'll get into it like this part is the dream, but there's also other people that exist outside of the dream. And there may mm-hmm. be like seeing little fragments of your dream. And maybe that's what ghosts are. And maybe that's right. like, you know, there's all this like this just sort of braided together realities that he does. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you never quite know exactly which layer of the cosmic <laughs> like stratosphere you're in, you know, mm-hmm. but it's like that's so unsettling. And it's just. 
it's how I've always experienced life. It's like as just mm-hmm. like surreal and unsettling. And I constantly feel like I'm looking around like, is anyone else seeing this shit? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, and I was just like when I watch his movies, I just feel like I'm it sounds like so wooey woo, like hippie shit. Like, but I feel like I'm vibrating on the same wavelength. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, yes, this is the feeling. This is yeah. the feeling. <laughs> yeah, this is going to sound probably stupid, but that's how I feel a lot of times when I watch Mike, Mike Flanagan stuff. Like, I yeah. feel like he just kind of gets my emotional vibe you mm-hmm. know and so and and it's really great to find a filmmaker that you feel like you really just resonate with you know it's totally. like yep I'm on board for this even when it's stuff I don't necessarily like like they're still I'm still down with it unfortunately the filmmaker I vibe with the most is John Landis who <laughs> oh no you know, who him I, and his horrible his, son I love yeah. his that's it like you you would think like the Twilight Zone would be the greatest tragedy he ever gave birth to, but actually it's Max. <laughs> it's Max. <laughs> I will never uh, get tired of making fun of like some rich man's son. It doesn't like hmm. Richard Dreyfus also have a horrible son that he's always like screaming at. I don't know. I, don't I think know. he's like horrible adjacent. I don't know if yeah. he's Well, I know Tom Hanks has Chet. Yeah, and yeah. Tom Hanks has Chet. You got you, you get one good son Chet? and one Yeah, you're exactly. asking for trouble. <laughs> If yeah, you, Colin Hanks does make up for Chet, I feel like. I everyone's really like, like look at this son, not that son. He's like <laughs> in the background doing a Jamaican accent. You're like, no, 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 look away. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, well, speaking of bizarre accents that don't have anything to do with, <laughs> with what's going on in the story, let's talk about Twin Peaks. Not, fuck, what am I talking about? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, um, okay. Well, so let's dive into our mental health issue. And I don't know a ton about dreams other than that I have them. I very rarely remember them. And well, that's I, two of us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and I know Carl Jung exists. That's about all mm-hmm. I know. So what, what are we talking about with dreams today? So we're just going to kind of like briefly go over like Freud's theory of like dream analysis today uh and also like where in the brain uh you know what what the brain is like doing when one's dreaming and then next time we come around we'll talk more about like more modern and prevailing theories of dreams as well as uh a few ways to kind of like analyze or interpret dreams we'll get into like next time we talk we'll talk more about uh like lucid dreaming and IRT it's perfect for that movie. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and IRT, which is I'm forgetting what the second word stands for right now, in but it's real basically time. Nah, it's image reimagining theory, I believe. Uh, but I'm just always drawing a blank. Like if you have, if I have to string more than two words together, forget about it. <laughs> it's um, internal revenue telekinesis. It's, it's a way that you can oh, if you're someone really that bad. if you're someone that experiences nightmares, that it's a way to combat them. Uh, hmm. That can lead to like lucid dreaming. There's some specific techniques. Oh, I need that. Use. Yeah. I feel like I'm constantly trapped in a nightmare. Uh, and all, honestly, it's something that I've tried with a couple clients. And I'll be very honest with you, like they don't do the work they're supposed to do. Yeah. To do lucid dreaming at all, it's like a bunch of work you do. Yeah. You have to do like almost all day. Like, isn't it like the first thing you have to do, like constantly being like, questioning whether you're in a dream at this moment like con- throughout your day throughout your like there, a, to train your muscles more like basically writing down your dream interpreting the dream and then writing down like a new ending for your dream mm, interesting that type of deal and they're like yeah i, I didn't do that like great all right well <laughs> well this is on. not gonna work then excellent <laughs> so you know the the prevailing theories and dreams 
uh, for like years were taken from Sigmund Freud. Uh, in 1899, he published The Interpretation of Dreams, where he laid out basically all his theories on why people dream and what they represent. Spoiler alert, it's about sex. What? Like, <laughs> shockingly. Freud. Enough. Right. <laughs> so like many of Freud's theories, like future generations of psychologists and psychiatrists have debunked them or reinterpreted uh, their meanings. Uh, and that makes sense, like given the advances that we've made in science over the past 130 or so years. Like, you know, Freud wasn't working off of MRIs to see what the brain is actually doing when someone is in the sleep state. Um, and also, like, there's been just years of advances in, like, how we treat persons and what kind of counseling or, or psychoanalytic theories we actually use at this point. So there's been a pretty significant break there. And we just, you know, in general, have a much better understanding of how the brain works now versus, you know, in the 1890s when people are using forceps to measure the size of a brain and saying, mm. <laughs> this will determine whether or not a person is a criminal. Um, so this we, one, yeah. Yes, we've come Inside a long Inside the maybe. head is the ovaries. And mm -hmm. Zemeck is so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the, the biggest criticisms of Freud is the way that he conducted his research. Uh, especially when it came to things like dream theory. Because number one, the persons that he was researching on, they were persons that were already committed to psychiatric wards because they were suffering from pretty severe mental illness at that time. And he's drawing exclusively from these patients as a means to gather like his research and formulate his theories. So the persons that he's working with, they may not be the best people in order to say, like, how does the everyday lay person, how should they interpret their dreams? Mm -hmm. Also with Freud, he came up with specific theories about childhood development or how children think, but he never worked with children. He just worked <laughs> with adults and <laughs> postulated. It makes me laugh every yeah. time. I'm sorry. <laughs> he just like postulated that basically children are tiny adults that grow bigger over time for lack mm -hmm. of a better word. So which is partially true. But yeah, I mean there's a lot more to <laughs> yeah. Right. But there are, it's you like, know, we know yeah. with Erickson and other childhood and other uh, other childhood development specialists like there are certain milestones or touchstones or mm -hmm. development touchstones that a person's going to hit or a child's going to hit as they go along the way. So what a dream might mean to like a two-year-old versus a six, you know, usually like mm -hmm. three to six is typically when kids have the most, like the largest amount of nightmares. Mm -hmm. And, you know, three to six is when kids go through like significant amount of changes in their developmental history, both in how they see the world, how they interact with the world. Uh, and also like, as you start it's for school age children, your social circle grows much larger as well. Mm -hmm. And you have to, develop all of these like new relationships. And for more information on a lot of that, check out our episodes on Ginger Snaps and Raw, because we talked a lot about that in Coming of Age Horror, and so it's a really good explanation to that. Yeah, I think eventually we'll go back and we'll do things like The Bad Seed or Good Son. Mm -hmm. uh, I was yeah. going to say Orphan, but that's technically not a child. Right, yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert! <laughs> <laughs> movie rules yep. but we'll go back and maybe do like some movies with like early early mm. childhood yeah that'd so be great definitely as so we kind of circle back in some of these things got lots of thoughts about little kids <laughs> yeah 
they're awful. Uh, finally, <laughs> finally, the other big criticism of Freud's theories basically come down to like they're all about sex. Like everything in Freud's dreams are like it's it's sexual. So like this umbrella is a penis, except when it's a vagina when it's open. The sandwich you eat in your dream is again wanting to return to the womb. The cane you see this person walking within your dream is your wish for a larger phallus. So it is also a penis. Yes, everything <laughs> is a penis, basically. Uh, guess I what mean, this is? It guess what? Yeah. Guess what it is? This. It's a penis. <laughs> Sorry. So, you want it. Yeah. <laughs> so you ladies. We'll talk more about uh, modern dream theories uh, in the next episode. But like really quickly, you know, the idea like why do we dream? You know, modern research is stating, well, it's kind of create newer and longer lasting memories to kind of push out memories that are less important and make mm-hmm. the ones that we should have like stick with us more. Also, like when we're dreaming, we are able to tap into the unconscious parts of our brain that are responsible for creativity, and that allows for uh, a greater freedom for problem solving. So if you're stuck on something in your real life and start to dream about it, uh, the dreams might be a way to kind of process through and also to kind of like find ways to kind of craft and understand and cope with certain stressors and adversity that we come up with. And to Freud's credit, like as he got older and as he went later in life, he, you know, did say like, look, my theories aren't like a one size fits all. Like he's like, I can't explain the reason why people would have like nightmares after certain traumatic events. Like what we know Mm -hmm. now, like one of the Symptoms of PTSD is if there's a recurring nightmares centered around the event that lasts for like six months or longer. Like that's mm-hmm. a person who so. Yeah. And there's and there's a lot of theory about trauma and memory and sort of traumatic PTSD being like a memory that you can't process. So the interaction mm-hmm. of that with dreams and the idea of the theory of dreams as memory processing. Yeah vehicles is interesting to me. There's also Mm -hmm. just to touch on one other little theory, and I don't have anything prepared for this. It's just, I think it's important in relation to um, Lynch is Carl Jung, like you you mentioned, like that's more of the idea of like the collective unconscious Mm -hmm. um, and that dreams are a way to tap into it. Like we're all sort of referencing these points that exist outside of ourselves and that we Mm -hmm. sort of tap into them occasionally in dreams. And me personally, I think it's much more on the side of memory processing, but I do think there's something to that collective unconscious idea. And it really resonates with me in moments when I'm watching a movie like this and things just Mm -hmm. feel a certain way to me, or there's things that have this sort of inexplicable familiarity. And I just love, I love getting, going down that rabbit hole. So (laughs) yeah, I mean, Jung took a lot of Freud because he studied under Freud and he took a lot of Freudian theories and adapted them in a way that I think still works today. Like it's a lot easier to use Jungian psychoanalytic theory uh, than it is to Freud to like a modern context. And then after that, there was like Adler who looked at like dreams as a way to kind of process one's future self. Like dreams Mm. were one's hopes for the future, not the present or not a way to kind of reinterpret the past, but what we hope our future selves would become. I think like Freud's theories work pretty well for Mulholland Drive uh, in particular things Mm. about like repressing one's guilt um, mm-hmm. and also repressing one's like sexual desires. So yeah. in short, like what Freud's interpret interpretations of dreams are, he basically says that dreams simply put tap into our unconscious desires and urges. 
pretty much like everything with Freud is tapping into one's unconscious <laughs> desires yeah. and urges, but they're ruled by the id. The id is that part of the mind that says, I want something, I want it right now, give it to me right now. Mm-hmm. So our lust, our appetites, our desire for power, our desires for dominance, they are all parts of the id. And mm-hmm. during the sleep cycles, because the ego and the super ego are considered like they're kind of like not working in all cylinders at that point because they're more mm-hmm. repressed. Dreams are the unconscious way to kind of tap into those desires that we have. And it could be sometimes the urges we have are very innocent. They're just like little things we want, things about our lives we want to change, things we want in our relationship, hopes that we might have for for better future selves. Sometimes, as Freud would postulate, those urges are so out of the ordinary and so against cultural norms that they had to be repressed down. And the Mm -hmm. only way for those to come out was when the ego and the superego were then suppressed in your sleep state at that Mm -hmm. point. And that's why, you know, dreams can be so over the top and so out of uh, the ordinary. So like this urge, the urges we might all have to act out on our sexual impulses to like, I see an attractive person and I want to kind of grab them and have them right away like the ego and superego what prevents us from doing that those things were tampered uh down in our sleep state and then a lot of it is wish fulfillment as well like this is the way that our life is and in our dream state this is the way that we would hope our life would be and i think you see that here with like rita and betty like betty is dreaming about the way that she wishes her life was or her relationship was and then the last fifth of the movie is like here's what we're actually seeing Mm. yeah yeah. There is a little bit of research that's gone in to support this theory, particularly around the idea of thought suppression. There was a controlled study done in 2004 uh, by Daniel Wagner, where he took three groups and basically said, okay, first group, all of you, what you're going to do before you go to bed is you're going to take five minutes and you're going to think about a person in your life. And then for the next five minutes, you're just going to free associate right before you go to bed. Group number one, you are not allowed to think about the person that you thought of before when you're doing your writing. When you're writing, you cannot think about them. Group number two, you're allowed to think about that person if you want to when you're doing your writing, not a problem at all. Group number three, you're not given any instruction. Just write. We're not going to say anything. And what the what Wagner found when he looked at the results was like the persons that were told do not think about this person when you're doing your writing more often than not and at a much higher rate than the other two groups dreamt about that person that Hmm. evening and we see that in our life like if i say don't think about the color red immediately you start to think about the color red in some way that happens all the time so finally just very very quickly what do our brains actually do when we dream so since most dreams are controlled in REM sleep during the the reticular uh, activating system, uh, which is the circuits that run from like the brainstem all the way through the cortex. Many parts of your brains are actually involved. The amygdala, which is the spot where memories are held and shaped. Like as you're dreaming, that part of your brain is now trying to like kick out memories that it believes are less important and then Mm -hmm. kind of reshape and make it easier for you to hold on to memories or events that it feels will be more important to you going Mm -hmm. forward. Cortex is what is responsible for the content of your dreams. So the monsters you see in your dreams, the people you encounter in your dreams, the situations that happen, 
all of the events like that is the cortex shaping them the frontal lobes which are part uh, a big part of shaping our executive functioning capabilities so things like our organization skills our working memory things like managing our self regulation because the frontal lobes are in a more of a down state during dreaming and they're not wor- you're not working on the same logical platform you would if they were up and running that's why when you're dreaming you can accept the fact that oh i can fly now or mm-hmm. oh there's like a two-headed monster in front of me and it's a completely normal thing to do yeah mm-hmm. it's like the teacher has left the building and all the kids mm-hmm. are having imagination time so it's a pretty complex system overall you know it's what yeah it's... <laughs> i thought it was going to be extremely simple right? yeah. a spider and means you're gonna die tomorrow no. <laughs> i'm looking forward to in a couple weeks again like i just don't enjoy talking about freud <laughs> you know yeah. and that'll net someone not that'll net us a one-star review yeah i yeah. mean yeah and hey if you do that's great Yeah, I would actually really like to hear because there are people who call themselves like Freudian who are Mm -hmm. modern practitioners Mm -hmm. that have adapted his theories and based on, you know, a lot of research of his, I don't know what you want to call them, protege descendant Mm -hmm. lineage, Mm -hmm. that pedigree of thought might have something really interesting to say. Like, I I know my I have a friend who's going to a Freudian specific psychology program and Mm -hmm. um, but he's not like he doesn't think you all want to fuck your mom or something like that's not what he describes to me when he tells me about the program. So I'd be Mm. very curious to hear a a genuine Freudian talk about that. I was rewatching the state last night, the old sketch comedy show from the nineties on MTV. And they have like a sketch where they're eating potato chowder around like a lunch table. And Mm. that's all high school boys. And one of the boys is like, yeah, this isn't as good as my grandmother's potato chowder. And they just make like five minutes of sexual euphemisms. <laughs> and at the end of the sketch, he's like, yes, if you're implying that I go to my house and eat my and have like the potato chowder my grandmother makes, that's correct. And then I have sex with her. I have sex <laughs> with my grandmother. And <laughs> thought that was fantastic. Sounds like Letterkenny. They'll have like just a five minute string of euphemisms. Um <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Mike. That is really interesting. I think dreams are just fascinating. Um, I have an archetype deck, which is like an oracle deck, but it's based on Jung's interpretation of like our um, a different personas, you know, mm-hmm. or different elements of ourselves, which when I'm thinking about like something like the cowboy, like that's such an iconic image, you know, and to have it like that character doesn't really do anything except like lend the weight of this hat and this like being at a ranch and like what does that imply to the story and why would that be interesting so it's I think it's just fascinating you know and I also am lots of times really drawn to things that don't have concrete answers you know which is one thing that I really like about dreams and kind of talking about them and maybe we'll like about Lynch as and Mm. you know I continue to kind of explore his stuff some of the things you've said have made me thought think for a while you might like David Lynch, just really? that idea of like pulling on these threads, you know? Well, okay. So when I started watching Twin Peaks and I got, I say like, I got to like episode eight, I got to the llama and, and then I kind of stopped and I, I don't know if I lost interest or something else kind of came along, you know, but now that I'm thinking that I didn't really like Mulholland Drive until I saw the whole thing and I can kind of view it as a complete at least a complete idea as he intended me to see it, you know, mm-hmm. I'm like maybe I just need to go a little further and, you know, kind of drink a little more of the Kool-Aid. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm not going to argue against that, but right. uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think all, you've also talked about not always enjoying camp, like campy things. And he is definitely mm-hmm. campy. He uses like he's got a really distinct sense of humor. And I think a lot of those elements that people, you know, latch on to like the llama for obvious reasons, because it's like a fucking llama shows up. Right. Those are him kind of having a bit of fun within this mm-hmm. larger context. That's just my opinion about it. Yeah. So you kind of have to like just you have to embrace that from the outset like we're just gonna go along for the ride and yeah. you either learn to love it or it's just not for you you know right and, and you know I'm pretty good at kind of letting the things go that are not necessarily for me and just saying all right like we used to watch Sons of Anarchy and this is a total tangent but like I never really cared too much about some of the rival gang stuff so Corey and I just had this phrase like oh it's just something to do with the Niners and then mm-hmm. we would just dismiss that entire plot element we're like yeah I don't need to worry about that I care about the um, Run through this world oh, all God, alone. No. Sorry, every time I hear <laughs> Sons of Anarchy, the name, I have to start singing the theme song. I mean, I've got a lot of thoughts about Sons of Anarchy, maybe oh, for awful. another day. It's <laughs> Yeah, if I had known, and I mean, not too much of a tangent, if I had known what that show was going to end up as, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would not have started watching it, but I was too far in. And no. Jax is super hot. Well, so let's dig into the movie. And my first question was, what is real and what is a dream? Isn't that the question for all of life? Hi, listeners. This is Jen, and I'm just dropping in to say that we had so much to say about Mulholland Drive that we are going to split this episode in two. I know, it's a big shock, but this movie just has so much to talk about, especially regarding dreams. So um, I'm going to drop that episode in your feed on Monday. And in that, you'll be able to hear us talk about all things Mulholland Drive in the context of dreams. We'll talk about Betty. We'll talk about Rita. We'll talk about Diane. We'll talk about Adam. And we're going to talk about that winky scene, which I just am dying to talk about. So make sure to check that out on Monday. And I will see you